It's October 21st, 2018, and this is episode 378 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. So guys, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about stable coins, and one of the main topics of conversation on that show, uh, Tether, the stable coin that's supposed to be tethered to the US dollar, a one-to-one, and is used by a lot of exchanges. Well, we had uh, some news come out recently, and we thought it was worth doing kind of an update. On the last show where we talked about this, we raised some questions and skepticism about, you know, the solvency and does any pegged coin that tries to back their coin with reserves... How do you know that they actually have the reserves that they claim to have? Well, there was a scare this week, I guess, when a banking partner went up for sale. And this caused kind of a panic about what reserves Tether was actually holding. Since the exchange Bitfinex was relying very heavily on Tether, they actually suspended deposits for a little while while this was getting sorted out. I thought it was worth talking about this because, you know, a lot of people liked our show on stable coins. A lot of the fears that we touched on on that show do seem to be coming to the fore. The funny thing about this whole issue is that the most fearsome thing is fear itself, meaning that there doesn't actually need to be a problem for the panicked response to be a problem and cause a problem. And so what happened was Tether became untethered. It turned into not exactly stable coin. So at some point at its maximum, it dropped by about 5% against the dollar. So it was trading at 95 cents on face value. So that's already a problem. And the other problem is the, the repercussions this has, the ripple effect, if you like, is that as soon as that happens and Bitfinex or any other exchange suspends withdrawals of fiat, what happens is people trade their fiat for Bitcoin so that they can withdraw it that way. And as a result, huge amount of demand, not enough supply, the price of Bitcoin starts diverging from the rest of the exchanges. We've seen that right now, BTC is trading at 6,400 something on most exchanges, 6,700 on Bitfinex. Which is very reminiscent of kind of the whole Mt. Gox experience, where we weren't talking about a tokenized version of a dollar, but we were effectively talking about another version of a dollar, right? This was a dollar worth of value within an exchange like Mt. Gox. And at the point that you can no longer pull that value out in the same way, you start to see people get nervous and they trade it in, even if it is at something of a loss. Instead of looking at it as... Bitcoin is expensive on Bitfinex, effectively what is happening is dollars are being discounted on Bitfinex. And the reason is because you can't take them out. That's why the price of Bitcoin in dollars has increased to that level. One of the big questions that I have about all of this, and one of the things that's really different about this time with Tether versus all the other times that people have had concerns about Tether, is now there are real alternatives to Tether that don't seem to have these same problems like we talked about. You know, Tether was kind of like the first one out there. I remember, you know, like this was a conversation that was happening in 2014, early 2014, and Tether launched not too long after that. 
So as far as projects go, this was really kind of the early precursor of these stable coins. But now, now you've got the Winklevi dollar. Now you've got the one that just came out from Circle. Another one came out right after we released that episode too. This has gone from being a market that has only one option in it, which everyone who wants that utility is forced to use, to now there's lots of options, all of which seem more legitimate than the one that people have been using for a long time. So I think that whether this is a real problem or not, certainly the environment in which Tether exists has very much changed. The, the question is, how much better are these other options? Because Tether wasn't the first. It was preceded by a dollar peg on the Omni or MasterCoin platform, if I remember correctly. No, that actually is it. That is Tether. BitUSD was before Tether. BitUSD was before Tether, but it was, but that was the game theory one. Tether was the first one that actually they were like, we have this money in a vault. We say that it's associated with Bitfinex, but the reality is Bitfinex was the instigator of this project and was the original group that was really wanting it to happen because they needed something like this. So the only question is, can these other stable coins create more trust? basically by auditing their reserves more on a more frequent basis. As far as I know, Tether has done one third-party audit, which was a few months ago, and that didn't seem to create enough trust. Some of these new platforms are claiming to be under the purview of various regulatory bodies and will be doing more frequent audits. Because at the end of the day, if you are trusting a peg, you're, you're trusting in the custodian of the dollars. And that trust has to be earned somehow, since there is no trustless mechanism to do this. You're not just trusting the custodian, but you're also trusting the risk that the government won't seize it, because Liberty Dollars didn't have the problem of not having reserves, it had the problem of the FBI seizing all of the collateral. That's right. Liberty Reserve, for those who don't remember, was a project that used basically, I believe it was Silver? Was it all silver or did they also have gold too? I think they had gold. It was hard metals. Well, soft metals. Hard money, soft metals. Thank you for the correction. But I really like the idea of backing something with hard metals, so I'm going to do a tungsten coin. <laughs> <laughs> right, because they literally had a vault filled with coins. It was just that the government took them. <laughs> and some of those coins didn't belong to them. They were holding it on behalf of someone else. Right. Most of those coins didn't belong to them, actually. It was a way that people were able to use that money digitally effectively, right? It's like trading receipts. It's a lot harder to seize hundreds of thousands or thousands of pounds of silver than it is to just, you know, transfer US dollars out of a bank account. So whenever we talk about these custody dollar peg solutions, at the end of the day, the U.S. government has unilateral rights against dollars, regardless of where they are in the world. It's sort of how disruptive can these things get before they're just stopped, not because the actors aren't doing things as they claim they are, but because the U.S. government won't allow it to. That's an interesting point that you brought up, Jonathan. And actually, I think that Tether was trying to sort of counter these rumors or like assure people basically that they did have the reserves. And they released like some kind of report or balance sheet or audit or something that seemed to imply that they were holding other assets besides US dollars in order to back their coins. So maybe they have a portfolio of assets backing their coins. But regardless, there is still the risk. And as Andreas said before, the fear of them not being solvent or them not having the reserves is enough to muck with the price. Can we uh, wrap this up by discussing kind of how worried we are or not worried we are? I'm not very worried because I don't use any of these. <laughs> I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, but does this represent a systemic risk to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general? I think not for two reasons. We survived Gox, which had both the reserve problem and the only exchange available at the time effectively, which caused a liquidity problem. So we know Bitcoin can survive that. Tether isn't a very big part of the market capitalization, even though it's important to a few exchanges. And there are now other stable coins that the market can switch to if there's a problem with this one. And presumably, if the reserves still exist, then it shouldn't be too difficult to switch from one to another. So I'm not worried about it being a systemic risk, although it can damage specific exchanges and cause headaches for customers who use it. Not a systemic problem, in my opinion. Could be wrong, of course. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The ecosystem is a lot more diverse and resilient than it was in the days of Mt. Gox, when that was like the only exchange that you could possibly use. Yeah, the ecosystem being different is, I think, more important than anything else in this question. Tether has fought legitimacy issues, you know, and claims that they don't have the money for a long, long time. And so long as the market didn't have any good options that replicated the functionality of that, then you really didn't have any risk of the project collapsing in the way that it could now. But now I actually do have increasing concerns about the viability of Tether, not because of any real underlying issues, but because now there are escape valves and lifeboats that will allow people who have a lot of Tether to not have a lot of Tether, but not give up the advantage that having a lot of Tether has given them over the years. As far as the actual overall ecosystem goes, though, I agree with you. I think that if Tether is going to fail, that this is the time when it will have the least impact on cryptocurrency, relatively speaking. And really, all it'll do is just make one or multiple of the other type of dollar coins that are now out there into the de facto option. Because right now, I would argue that just through name recognition, the length of time it's been around, people have problems with it. But ultimately, it is still the largest dollar coin by a large margin. That could change. And to their credit, because it is easy to fault someone for not being sort of an ideal, Tether sort of did something really cypherpunky, which is the idea of what happens to a financial institution when they become unbanked. How do we as a market get around that and say, well, you're not going to stop us from conducting business with them? So as a hot patch rooting around censorship and the tyranny of the sovereign, it was a really cool thing to do. It was really awesome. It was really libertarian. It is really libertarian. It's not the perfect solution. I don't think it ever will be. But the fact that it's even able to make the fight to the extent that it can, I think is something worth meriting. It's sort of important to remember that Apache rules the world and it's literally called Apache server. So whatever may end up being the solution at best may just be described as a hodgepodge of things that are broken that we assemble together that works well enough. Tether's problem has been they have money in a bank account. And you can say, yes, you have that money in a bank account, but an audit firm, like when you have a hundred bucks in the bank account, you have a hundred bucks. When you have $2 billion in a bank account, you don't have $2 billion in the bank account. What you have is $2 billion in assets. And what someone needs to understand is proving whether or not you have $2 billion in liabilities, because they need to net out your liabilities with your assets to understand how much you actually have as a balance. The problem is that people can look at a bank account and say, yes, the money's there, but I cannot for a fact know and represent on your behalf that there aren't a billion, two billion or $4 billion worth of corresponding liabilities 
that are collateralized against the $2 billion in this account. Ergo, I can't say that you as a company are solvent to the tune of net $2 billion. ICOs are a thing. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about this, but it turns out people are raising some uh, decent money over the last couple of years. I'm just kidding. One of my biggest complaints about the fundraising space in general within cryptocurrency over the last couple of years has been that ICOs started off as something that were really empowering to fully decentralized projects, but eventually people figured out, and it didn't take too long, that you could use these to fund things other than fully decentralized projects. And actually, it was much easier to fund these things using the ICO method or the token sale method than it is to actually go to traditional venture capital where really it's more relational and there's lots of hoops to jump through on that side. With ICOs, sort of the impression from early on was that you have an idea, you put together a compelling pitch for your idea, hopefully you have a proof of concept that actually demonstrates that your idea is not crazy, and then you raise all the money that you need instead of selling equity by selling a token. This is an idea that everybody likes who's trying to raise money because it looks like absolutely the best path forward towards raising money since you don't have to give any equity and you get to involve people in your project. So now they have a financial interest in the success of your project, which then gives you that initial community you're looking for. I spent a lot of years traveling and talking about this exact idea. But as time has gone on, my knowledge and experience with this mechanism has become more nuanced. For the last year, I've been kind of complaining about the fact that ICOs, as they're handled, are totally illegal. In the last couple of months, in the last you know six months, there's been kind of more discussion about that, more focus on securitized token offerings, which are basically taking the idea of a token sale or an ICO, but instead of ignoring all of the laws around fundraising, you follow all of the laws around fundraising and you wind up with a token that's pretty terrible, but is better than non-liquid equity. <laughs> so... A couple of days ago, an article came out from Decrypt Media that basically is an investigation into the enforcement activities and sort of the SEC clarity that I've been waiting for for a long time and a lot of people have been waiting for for a long time, which was never really made obvious, but which seems to be happening now behind the scenes. So to read a couple of quotes from this. During the past few months, the Security and Exchange Commission has significantly widened its crackdown on certain initial coin offerings, putting hundreds of cryptocurrency startups at risk. The SEC sent out a slew of initial information seeking subpoenas at the start of 2018. Now the agency has returned to many of these companies and subpoenaed many more, focusing on those that failed to properly ensure they sold their tokens exclusively to accredited investors. The agency is exerting pressure on many of these companies to settle their cases. In response, dozens of companies have quietly agreed to refund investor money and pay a fine. But many startups that have been subpoenaed say that they are left in the dark, struggling to satisfy the SEC's demands and are uncertain of how others are handling it according to conversations with more than 15 industry sources as part of a joint investigation by Yahoo Finance and Decrypt. So I'd like to also bring up utility coins in this particular conversation because I think that's a death trap for companies. So I want to talk a bit about that and talk about security tokens as perhaps a better solution and kind of the in-between situation of the quasi-illegal, quasi-utility being the absolute worst of all. So kind of the spectrum being utility on one end, not a very good solution for most cases, security on the other end, and in the middle, the thing that doesn't know what it is and is pretending to be either or, which exposes you to all the liability and all of the risk and is the worst option. So what's the middle option? I know about the other two. 
the middle option is a security token pretending to be a utility token for an application that doesn't actually need a utility token, which is the worst. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're mostly discussing the environment in the U.S. and we're discussing projects that have fundraised in the U.S. or that we're seeking funding in the U.S., things like that. The reality of all of these things is that there is a case for utility tokens, but the case for utility tokens is really more in projects that are like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Utility coins are things that are required to make a platform work, right? And in many cases, what happened during the ICO craze was, in order to prevent scrutiny or hide behind a fig leaf, a lot of projects that didn't require an actual utility token pretended to be a utility token in order to raise money. And the end result is that they ended up with all of the risk of a startup, plus the risk of trying to bootstrap an economy, which is very difficult to do with a utility token, for an application that neither needs a utility token nor is enabled by it. If in order to use your crazy new risky startup platform, I have to both adopt the technology and transfer money into a low liquidity utility token, you're dead right out of the gate. And I'm, it's never going to work. So you've got double the risk. And so a lot of companies, in order to avoid the SEC scrutiny, ended up kind of saddling themselves with this fake utility token that is far, far worse than if they had simply gone for qualified investor fundraising with a, with a security token. My favorite example of this, as far as a system that really did not benefit from having its token used in a fundraiser, is the Steemit platform. So the Steemit platform is basically Reddit, but it uses a blockchain to secure data. Uh, and it also has a rewards program built in and lots of other stuff like that. But the point is, is that the possession of the underlying token gives the user that has that weight within the system when it comes to curating content. So we've talked in the past about how one upvote isn't necessarily worth the same as another upvote because the person who's given the upvote might be a really good curator, whereas the other one might be just somebody who's a brand new spam bot that signed up. So the purpose of a platform like Steemit with this token is to create this weight where people who are good at curating naturally within the system earn more of the token over time and then they gain larger weight which improves the overall quality of the curation within the system it's like stake i think of that as like stake in the platform yeah right it's like stake or another word that i like to think of is like voice right it's like how big is your voice within the platform you can quantify that by the amount of of the token that you actually have the problem with that is that when you have a project like that where the whole point is to create this curational engine but you take a large proportion of the tokens, which are given out at the very beginning of the project, and you give them to all the people who put in money, then the people who are curating the platform are not the people who are good at curating the platform, but they're the people who had the money to put in at that time. And so you create this problem where even though the system as designed looks like it should work to create a very, very rich curational platform, instead what you wind up with is a platform that's catering to the needs of these very specific people who have all of the weight. And so that's a situation that we've seen play out in lots and lots and lots of projects. It's just particularly obvious to me within the Steemit platform. There's a little bit more signal within the system, but the noise set there initially is still huge. The other problem that is not immediately obvious in this particular case is that if your utility token is successful at fundraising and leads to some kind of speculative frenzy or price appreciation that gives you a return on investment as an investor, it destroys the use of it as a utility token for your platform because 
if that's the token you use to consume the platform services, then effectively the platform services just got too expensive to use. So imagine, again, we could use Siemens as an example, but the same thing happened to Ethereum, which is a true utility token. This is a problem that exists even in the things that really do need a utility token. When the speculation goes up, suddenly the transaction fees that are denominated in the utility token get too expensive to use the platform. This sort of gets to a broader topic, which would be an excellent discussion for another day, which is on negative feedback loops that we see in protocols and the way that the incentive models are designed. Because the idea that while demand grows for your system, you're decreasing the incentives for usage in the system for any system that wishes to scale is sort of the death nail in its success, sort of like a Friendster-esque sort of model to system design. So that might be out of the scope of this talk, but would be a fantastic one for another day. Well, I have a question. Why is Bitcoin different, do you think, Andreas? Everything that you said about Ethereum there is true about Bitcoin, except that Bitcoin did not do a fundraiser with its token. But all the same, like the price appreciation affecting the price of on-chain transactions or other things like that, like, is it really about the initial sale that causes that? It's not the initial sale that causes that. It's one of the weaknesses of utility tokens in general. And the same thing does apply to Bitcoin as well. One of the things to consider is that in Bitcoin, you have a feedback loop that should eventually correct that. Meaning that as the value goes up, and that means the price paid for fees goes up in denominated in fiat, that's going to drive up demand for mining, which then causes the difficulty to increase. So that's a self-adjusting market that should, should, in the long term, squeeze the profit margins of miners and make it more competitive so that fees come back down again. In short term, that doesn't work. and That's exactly what we see in periods of heavy speculation. Bitcoin fee prices go through the roof, and Bitcoin becomes unusable as a medium of exchange, at least on the base blockchain. And That's exactly what happened in November and December, when you're looking at $50 per transaction fees for a very brief period of time. Now, over the long term, that should stabilize again. The profit motive will drive more miners, but in the short term, it causes havoc. Bitcoin had this kind of unique genesis in that it arrived at a time when nobody believed that something like Bitcoin could work, much less become substantially valuable. And so the types of people who you had participating in the early days of Bitcoin were very much a self-selected group which didn't even include any of us, right? It was more self-selecting than any of us at the 2010, you know, back when there was effectively no price for Bitcoin. That was really an important time. And it's a time that when I look at any other project that's out there, whether we're talking about something that fundraised or something that even hasn't fundraised, none of them have that characteristic about them. And I wonder how important that characteristic winds up being when it comes to the long-term sustainability of these systems, or if this is really just a question of how you solve the zero to one problem. One of the things that Bitcoin maximalists harp about is this virgin birth theory, parthenogenesis, as we'd call it in Greek, which is the idea that Bitcoin was born through immaculate conception. It was open from day one, there was no pre-mining, and you were able to participate. And by you, I mean anybody who happened to be in the very, very, very narrow circle of cypherpunks. It's really a bit of a stretch to call it an immaculate conception. But perhaps it's a tiny bit cleaner than most of the other things that followed. And I think you can grant that it was a one-time event. That can never happen again. Once you've proven the success, every future thing that comes out, even if it's a shitcoin, will get that initial exuberance and 
people will do a pump and dump on it. But this all hinges on the idea that Satoshi Nakamoto or whoever else was behind that doesn't re-enter the market at some point in the future. So the best way that works as an immaculate conception is if in fact Satoshi Nakamoto's coins have been burned or the keys lost. If, however, they come back into circulation, then how is that different in the first months of 2009 from a pre-mine? I think motivation has to be what's different, right? Like motivation is the thing that uh, maybe it's not even motivation though. Motivation exists in the mind of another. I don't even know how you would qualify that when we have no data points to draw from. Well, I think that you can look at the current environment and you can say that many of these projects are started because they're a means to an end and that end is to get a lot of money. I've seen how the sausage is made four or five times in this space. Right. And every time someone calls out another project, I'm like, do you understand how the sausage was made in the project that you like? And I would be shocked, as Andreas said, if Bitcoin was materially or substantively different in that regard, especially with no contradictory information. Well, the, the only difference, and I think that does speak to Adam's motivation question, is that we do have a record of the motivation, and that's the public writings of Satoshi Nakamoto and others who participated in the early mining. And they were full of doubt. They were not certain that this was going to succeed. Quite the opposite. And not until maybe the end of 2010 did anyone even have a hint that this might one day have anything more than fractional value. And it was more than a toy. So I think that's the big difference. The fact that now everybody knows that these things might have value, that was not a proven consideration at the time. Most Bitcoin and blockchain events are expensive to attend, often charging $300 or more. Andreas M. Antonopoulos does events differently. Thanks to support from his subscribers on Patreon, he's able to put on educational events for as low as $30, one-tenth of the cost. On Saturday, November 10th, he'll be putting on a show in Seattle. It'll start at 6 p.m. with a screening of the documentary Ulterior States. Then Andreas will deliver one of his electrifying talks, followed by a long Q&A session and a meet and greet. To find out more about this event and get your tickets, go to andreas.events. To support Andreas in educating the world about open blockchains with a strong and neutral voice, consider subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash aantonop at $5 a month. Patrons get early access to videos before they're made public, as well as the chance to ask questions on his monthly Q&A live stream. One more time, to attend this special event in Seattle and connect with Andreas live, go to andreas.events. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. Did you know you can get postage on demand? All you need is stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. Buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package, all available 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale, empowering you to weigh letters and packages, then print the exact amount of postage every time. So, when you ship mail, packages, or whatever, think Stamps.com. And as a special bonus, use the code TALKBITCOIN, that's T-A-L-K-B-I-T-C-O-I-N with no spaces, to start your four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale. 
To enter your code, go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage to enter your code, TalkBitcoin. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin the conversation now. Thinking about how kind of the ICO thing emerged over time, first we had Bitcoin, which proved that you could do something that would be successful in the you know cryptocurrency space. Then we had altcoins, many of which tried to replicate Bitcoin in the immaculate conception theory with big air quotation marks. And some of them started doing what we called pre-mines, although that was largely disqualifying, right? If a project had some percentage that was given to its creators on the creation of it, most of the time in the early days, that was viewed as a disqualifying factor that meant that the person was basically in it to win it just from having launched the project and gotten any traction with it versus the actual kind of success path that we want to see a project like Bitcoin or, or really anything else that's going to succeed, gain adoption, and then become gigantic over time. But then Ethereum comes along, right? And Ethereum breaks some of those taboos by not only being a project that succeeds, but a project that raises a bunch of money and also does a pre-mine as part of that. So they both sold tokens from the supply. They gave tokens to people within that ecosystem. And that sort of seemed to validate that model moving forward. Jonathan, weigh in. I don't think Ethereum broke the taboo in the way you meant it. Although the, the net consequence was it broke the taboo. Ethereum got so much unending shit from everyone in the space because of the pre-mine it was had. I've had people that we may know <laughs> have long conversations with me about how it's probably a scam on the basis of the concept of even having a pre-mine. At the time, I was screaming bloody murder about it. They did it anyways, and they succeeded. So, I mean... <laughs> no, no, no. But my, my the point I'm trying to make is that the reason why people didn't like pre-mines up to that point was that they never worked out. The taboo Ethereum broke wasn't, hey, this is a taboo, now we're okay with it. It was, oh, that can make me money. Okay, fine, I'm willing to compromise on that now that that makes me money. Like the, the thing about this space that I just like, I want to hammer in people's heads is as we're growing exponentially, beliefs and integrity matter so much less. And Ethereum didn't break the taboo because it won the argument. Ethereum broke the taboo because all the fair weather friends just realized, oh, wait, pre-mines can actually make me money. It's not something that's trying to scam me. Oh, that's great. Now I'm interested in this. Now I understand that this will make me money, not lose me money. Now I'm cool with this. I mean, just look at all of the people who 14 and 15 were anti even the concept of any type of ICO. And like 30% of them did their own personal ICO last year. Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is when it came time to reconcile morals and money, they just dropped the morals. Yeah, and I don't think breaking a taboo, like if you want to describe breaking a taboo as figuring out how to make money doing it, then yes. But if you want to talk about breaking the taboo as in like winning the moral argument, then no. Yeah, I don't think this is a moral argument question. I agree with you. This is fully mechanistic, right? Like it's not about whether or not it was the right thing to do. It's just about the fact that someone did it and it worked. And that meant that you had a replicable model to follow, as I like to say all the time, and I'm not going to say again right now. Well, that's sort of funny that you said that it worked, because the Ethereum pre-mine was in no way materially different than the MasterCoin pre-mine. It's just MasterCoin failed. It was it was no way materially different than the MadeSafe pre-mine. It's just MadeSafe failed. It was Well, but this is exactly my point, is that how do you get the replication, right? How do you make this normal? No, no, but what I, what I mean is that the fact pattern construction for the sale was the same. It was just that because this time it made money that everyone said, oh, now I can copy that. 
Well, I mean, all of those projects made money at different times. I mean, if that's the standard that we're talking about, again, like I would say that it's because Ethereum is perceived as important, right? Like Ethereum is one of the big two out there. It's basically Bitcoin and it's Ethereum. And then there's a bunch more that you can say are, you know, qualifying for somewhere further down that ladder in the top 10. But pretty clearly it's Ethereum and it's Bitcoin at the top. Yeah, but that's that's an ex post facto rationalization, which is exactly what Jonathan said. <laughs> it, it, it's only correct because it became one of the big two, and it became one of the big two because people were willing to momentarily suspend their disbelief in the in the model of fundraising. But isn't that the definition of breaking a taboo? Like it doesn't matter if it's you know if it's rationalized after the fact. The whole point is that then people have come and and replicated that. Well, you know, so there, there's breaking a taboo because you think that people shouldn't sit in the back of the bus, and then there's breaking a taboo because I'll give you $5 to not complain. Okay. And I just think Ethereum broke the taboo the latter way, not the former way. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I guess Ethereum hit, what was it, the summer of 2016? Summer of 2015? Yeah, 2015. So summer of 2015, so that meant that the prior year would have been when MadeSafe and those other projects were doing their raise. That was 2014, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, MadeSafe occurred before Ethereum, storage occurred during Ethereum, and then Factum occurred slightly after Ethereum. I think we're screwing up years here, but the point remains. Broadly speaking, this is something that when people figured out that they could actually use this to raise money, not just for protocols, but for companies that were building those protocols and that there were actually examples of it being successful out there, I would argue that MadeSafe pushed people in the same direction too, because it was wildly successful as a fundraiser. It was a pretty large failure. I mean, if if we could go back and talk about that, I mean, get Paige Peterson on now that she no longer works there. <laughs> MadeSafe actually was a, a massive failure to the MasterCoin community because they did a, a two-token pegged model where they gave a preferential price to MasterCoin. So people bought MasterCoin to participate in MadeSafe, and then they capped out the MasterCoin exposure, and then everyone dumped their MasterCoin because they only bought it to buy MadeSafe. So MadeSafe raised an $8 million round and then had half of their MasterCoin round immediately turn to half of what it was worth because everyone dumped their MasterCoin. So it, that was actually, that was a massive and catastrophic failure. Like I could I could talk to no end about those those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there have been lots of ICOs out there. Some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Once Ethereum was out and successful, then it became the model by which people started to kind of try to replicate. And I will I will say this to the positive of Ethereum. It did two things right. One is that it only had one token that it pegged itself to, which was Bitcoin. So MasterCoin and MadeSafe, that sale was a massive problem because they did a two-token peg. Because it's almost as if pegging an asset to another asset is really, really hard and impossible to achieve. <laughs> the other thing was that the purchase receipts for Ether could not functionally in any way be transferred until the network launched. And everyone who's copied Ethereum from that point has not kept that feature. They immediately make transferable the receipts before the network initializes. I watched a video the other day from a project that did a $20 million ICO last year. A year later, with 30 developers, they give a two-hour talk where they're saying, yeah, you know, we're still trying to figure out what the utility function of our token is. Right. If you say that, you don't have a utility token network. At, to the, the, at least the, the one saving grace, if you're saying Ethereum broke a taboo that no one else is copying because it's not convenient to, is the concept, as Andrea said, is that if your network isn't live, why is your token trading? It's a fig leaf token. It's not a utility token. And the, the, the worst part about this is not so much the fact that 
these tokens are made to fool the SEC. Like, if the goal is to fool the SEC, all power to you if you want to take on an adversary like that. The real problem is that when you do a startup that intends to challenge an established industry using a novel technology like blockchain, that incorporates a certain amount of risk. Let's call that risk X. Then if you try to add to that a monetization platform and utility token, that has a risk Y. So you took your percentage of success for facing risk X and you multiplied it or <laughs> with the percentage of success of succeeding as a utility token and now your percentage of success is much much lower because you took on two massive risks you try to do two very novel very risky things simultaneously so most of these startups will fail because they took on too much and the reason they did it was to raise money uh, and that's the worst reason possible to do this. Yeah, the irony of all of this is that that reason that everyone did this is also exactly the thing that you can't do in order to fall within kind of the laws that surround this stuff, right? In the end, they're going to fail the startup and get in trouble with the SEC. The other thing is, I think people don't realize the horizon for investigations by the SEC. They're very comfortable very slowly building a hundred parallel cases that take five years to build and then five years from now slamming indictments on things that ICO'd five years ago. And since nothing ICO'd five years ago, that means we may have, you know, you may think, oh, we got away with it. It's great. The utility token worked. Hee hee. And then five years from now, the SEC comes back. And the worst part is they're going to try and claw back most of this money. And because these startups will have either lost a lot of value or spent a lot of the money, they're done. And the owners are going to end up in deep trouble. So moving back to the article for a second, the SEC sees most ICOs as security offerings and companies fail to comply. Many of the companies that did ICOs called their offering something else, such as a utility token or a SAFT, simple agreement for future tokens, an ICO method in which investors buy a reservation for tokens yet to be launched. But the SEC doesn't care about those labels. It weighs each ICO on a case-by-case -case basis, end quote. The way that it weighs ICOs on a case-by-case -case basis is the Howey test. We've gone over that in past episodes. I'm not going to repeat it again. But broadly speaking, the question is, are you investing in a company with the expectation that they're going to do something with your money and you're going to make more money off of it? And with an ICO, the answer is almost always yes. And so the question is, do they try to hide it, right? Do they put up a plausible story, right? Where it's like, oh, it's not about that. Actually, I'm buying this because I want to do something with the underlying utility. I'm buying Augur tokens because I'm going to use the Augur token, right? But the reality is, is that with all of these applications that are out there, we're still in such a early adopter place. Like maybe cryptocurrency as a whole is moving towards the kind of early majority phase over the next couple of years. But many of these tokens, again, like ain't nothing going to happen with them, right? Like there's very little hope that these projects will catch on in large part because there are architectural issues in terms of how people have built everything. So like if a single project succeeds, that's based on Ethereum, right? Then the Ethereum blockchain as a whole is suddenly defunct, right? So you have failure built into these projects at a certain point, unless conditions that are outside of their control are met, like solving the hard problem of scaling. So when you look at it like that, it's really just a question of, did the project use the token to fundraise? If they did, then chances are very good, at least in the US, it's going to be considered an investment and a security and all of the rigmarole and stuff like that 
all of the different processes and permissions and all of the things that make it difficult to raise money in real life. Well, congratulations. You've now introduced that into your project or you ignore those things and then you have this sort of liability at the other end. So the SAFT, let's talk about that for a second since we talked about utility tokens. In 2017, summer of, uh, it became increasingly obvious that some tokens were definitely going to be securities. The Dow report was released, which was on the project from the year prior, which had raised $100 million worth of Ether and then had a compromise in it that wound up effectively having Ethereum Classic be spun off from Ethereum, where Ethereum Classic did not return the tokens to people who invest in the Dow, whereas the main Ethereum chain, the quote-unquote main Ethereum chain, did. <laughs> or as you would put it, Adam, where the taboo of immutability was understood to no longer be necessary. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the DAO project, right, the SEC came out and they didn't say that all things that look like this are securities. They said that the DAO probably was a security, right? And so they provided some sort of clarification, but nothing that I would describe as clarity. And so you got a couple of months later and there were projects that really wanted to raise money that were coming out. And so the concept of the SAFT, which had been tossed around for a couple of months, hit in late October of 2017, early November. And so projects then had the opportunity to sell to accredited investors something that wasn't a token itself, but was a claim on a token. And that token might or might not be a security moving forward. And this was an idea pushed by several of the lawyers within the space because it was a better version that was more likely to be legal. But in reality, it looks like that fig leaf didn't change much at all. SAFTs are still within the, the crosshairs of this too. And so again, the question just really comes down to, did you follow the rules about fundraising? Because if you use your token for fundraising, then they consider it a security. And if they consider it a security, then there are all kinds of rules around that. And the vast majority of these projects did not do that for various reasons. I have a lot of sympathy for projects that did ICOs because having run tokenly over the last several years, I can tell you fundraising is difficult and fundraising in the ICO space where you just have to make a compelling pitch, at least in the early days versus in the venture capital space, which is a very different beast. It's a lot harder to raise capital following all of the rules and going through all of the processes that frankly make it difficult to raise money. But with an ICO, it seemed for a long time like free money. And I've uh, said before, I really wish that the SEC had simply been clear about this because the lack of clarity around it and the ability for people to plausibly think, oh, this is something that I can do because I'm taking this ameliorating step or this ameliorating step actually made it a competitive disadvantage. And it's still a competitive disadvantage to try and raise funds with a project in this space that doesn't use an ICO because people are so focused on the appreciation that's possible from ICOs, regardless of the fact that all of them are basically illegal. So that's where I come back to on this. And that's my real frustration with this topic is just that the opportunity that's there seems irresistible, but actually it was entirely illusory. And the people who took advantage of it are you know, now faced with a very difficult situation of what to do and how to make this happen without their project effectively getting destroyed. I think it's also worth saying something about just the pressure that must have existed at the time. If you had a project that you were trying to get off the ground and everyone around you is doing ICOs and instantly making their goals and you're like, well, I'm not sure if this is legal. I'm kind of like weirded out about this, but like the space is moving so fast. And if you don't do your idea, someone else is going to. And so I imagine that there was just an enormous amount of pressure on anyone who was trying to fundraise in the space 
during that time. And it seemed like an ICO was the only thing to to do. No, it's far, far more pernicious than that. Because the idea is selling something to whom the recipients have, in your argument, as one, one doing the sale would argue, no obligations, rights, or expectations of anything delivered to them for. But on the other side, there were numerous startups that I knew of that were trying to do equity rounds whose VC optioned them into not being able to do an equity round that then forced them into doing an ICO. And the disgusting thing about that is not only are you selling a product that gives less protections than equity, but the equity holders on their board that were forcing them to do that, if this legal thing goes sideways, are the protected class, not the predatory class. So these VC funds were saying, we don't want to be diluted. We're going to force you to do an ICO. Oh, here's this personal criminal liability you're taking on. Yeah, the people who are buying it have no rights or obligations. And if any of this goes sideways, we get to go after you criminally for the thing we forced you to do because we wanted to make more money off of you. Yeah, the rights and obligations thing is interesting, right? Because it's really one of those things where because, again, I would argue this space has been very poorly defined. There's been that sort of plausibility, right? Is the actual, like, you can make an argument that if you're doing something other than a security token, you actually don't want to include any sort of rights that would be part and parcel with the security, you know, because it makes the project look more like a security. Like, one of the things you don't want to do with a token that you say isn't a security is you don't want to give it voting rights, right? You don't want to have any sort of governance tie in. And similarly, if you have a security token, you don't want it to work within your system to perform any sort of utility because it muddies the water. And as Andreas said earlier in this conversation, now suddenly, instead of being in one camp or another, now you're in both and you have the downsides and the repercussions of both to contend with. Okay, so that's pretty much all the background about this. That's kind of how we got from where we started with Bitcoin, you know, in a very haphazard sort of path took where we were at the beginning of this year. And then over the course of this last year, over the course of 2018, we've seen more projects. But as time has gone on, it has become increasingly obvious to an increasing number of people that the whole way we've been doing ICOs is just fundamentally flawed. And so in my conversations with investors over the last six months, nine months, the topic du jour and at conferences too has been this idea of the securitized token offering or an STO. And at first, I did not like this concept at all, because basically what you're doing with an STO is you're taking a standard security, right? So I'm selling you equity in my company, and you are wrapping it in a token. And the thing is, is that there are all kinds of rules around what you can or can't do with equity and with securities and stuff like that. But tokens are this trustless decentralized thing, right? Where even if the value that's backing it is not trustless, the ability to move it and transfer it for the most part actually is. And so one of the kind of most common and the cheapest way to do a security token is what's called a Reg D exemption with the SEC, which allows you to raise up to a certain amount of money. It's, you know, millions of dollars, but you can only sell it and you can only talk about the project to accredited investors who are investors with income of more than $200,000 for two consecutive years or a net worth of over a million dollars. There goes most of the people right there. You can't actually talk to anybody about it if they don't have those sorts of qualifications. And then once you have actually sold these tokens to those people, they can't transfer them to anyone else by law for a year in order to qualify for the exemption. So at first, I'm looking at this and I say, why would we want to use a token for this at all? All we're doing is introducing 
problems into something that you know would otherwise work, right? If you have it as equity, at least you can't create a bad situation for yourself or the company. But with a token, there are situations where you know, like I could send it to somebody who's not accredited, and now not only do I have repercussions, but the company that issued the token and the company for whom it represents equity, they actually have a problem as well on the regulatory side. You know, that was kind of what I thought about this going in, and over time. What was explained to me, and what's become clear, is that I'm thinking about it like security tokens are a step down from normal tokens. But really, what's happening here is that you start from equity, non-tokenized equity, and this is a step up from the functionality of non-tokenized, non-liquid equity. And the idea here is that if you own equity in a company, but that company isn't traded someplace like the New York Stock Exchange, then your ability to actually turn that ownership stake into money is incredibly small, right? And it's very difficult. And it, in some cases, in many cases, is impossible because the company simply doesn't allow you to do that. With a token, you get around all of that stuff because now no longer is the company required to be involved in order to facilitate these transfers, right? So if you can get past all the problems that exist, like you need to, you know, the person can't transfer it for a year and they need to be an accredited investor. And so you need to have whitelists for accredited investors to exist. Suddenly you have what effectively looks like a decentralized market for non-liquid equity. It just happens to be in token form. So increasingly, I've come to think about securitized token offerings less as a token and more as simply a tokenized form of equity that throws out most of the advantages you get from tokens, but is still substantially better than the status quo when it comes to non-liquid equity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Counterparty is one of the first major innovations in the space besides Bitcoin. And their first real pivot was going after putting securities in tokenized form. I mean, they were working on it for years and years and, you know, Symbiont formed specifically to address that problem. So when people talk about bearer forms of securities and avoiding rehypothecation and the reducing of settlement times, all that stuff is really awesome and material and de-risks the systemic risk in the securities market. But, you know, it's nowhere near as disruptive or transformative as every other real blockchain related thing could be or will be. So it's sort of it's sort of this transference of innovation from Bitcoin and blockchain to security tokens where it's like, yeah, that's iterative and interesting, but it's it's so missing the point. To that point, exactly. I think a security token is to an open public tradable token what a DLT or permissioned ledger is to an open public blockchain. And the reason that's relevant even more so, I think, is because if that is the case, then the most likely platform to run security tokens is a DLT. And just like if you think of an exchange as a less sucky bank instead of a part of the cryptocurrency space, it doesn't hurt as much. Then if you think of these as just less sucky stock markets run by less sucky stock exchanges that are slightly more transparent than they were before, but still require you to fully trust the issuer, then it hurts less to think about it. The nice thing about this is that, yes, it provides some clarity for those who want to do security tokens. It's not going to change the fact that some of the most exciting, radical, and disruptive things are going to happen in the unregulated, unlicensed, pure token utility and decentralized platform space. Yes, very much so. And that, I think, is a very important point 
to just emphasize all of this is a means to an end to raise a bunch of money for different projects, right? Like projects need money in order to actually build the project. And so how you get that money has a really big impact on how the project develops. And while this is a closing off of that opportunity for people who exist in the U.S., for people who, you know, for projects that want to interact with and be traditional companies, this is a problem for them. For projects that are like Bitcoin or projects that are perhaps even like Ethereum, that is not the case. And the potential to use utility tokens still does exist. Although the moneyness is because the regulatory situation, you know, we're talking about the U.S., but it's also true, like when you're preparing an ICO these days, you also have to exclude China. You also have to exclude Korea. There's lots and lots of different places out there that have rules that make it so that your best move as a project is to actually exclude lots of places. But that's actually not necessarily bad for the projects. The issue is that it's not clear at all whether or not, even if I don't sell a token to someone in the U.S., if someone in the U.S. manages to get my token... Well, the U.S. now thinks they have jurisdiction. So there's confusion there. But the less like a real company you look like, the less these sorts of things should scare you, right? Truly decentralized projects still can very much use this mechanism simply because there's nothing to enforce. Well, I mean, to conversely state what you just said, in American law and in most countries' laws, you either have infinite personal liability or some sort of corporate entity subsuming that liability. So you just said... To the extent that you have infinite personal liability is to the extent to which your project will succeed. Mm. <laughs> well, work for Satoshi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know who he is, right? <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. Hang on a second, because li liability in law comes from control. You can't have liability, and I'm not a lawyer, but from what I understand, you have to have some control or responsibility in order to have liability, right? You don't just, you're not liable for everything that happens in the world unless you have some kind of participation in the control, the ownership, the management, the decision making, the something, right? So, true decentralized projects, the reason that you don't have unlimited personal liability is because you have zero personal control over them. And and that's the litmus test. And in fact, that's not something that I've said, that's something that the Department of Justice has said specifically about Ethereum. I think that's where you draw the line. The ones that are true utility tokens, the Owners don't exist. There are no owners. The management doesn't exist. There is no management. The controllers don't exist. The only people who ultimately have any kind of control over the platform are the users themselves. So there are basically three types of ICOs moving forward, I see. There are truly decentralized projects like we're talking about now. There are sort of traditional ICOs, which are basically fundraisers that don't follow the rules. And then there are securitized token offerings. I think that we're going to see in this coming year securitized token offerings be the de facto that we see most of these projects launch with. Most of the high-profile projects will use securitized token offerings. We'll see traditional ICOs get to be a lot less, fail a lot more, and there will be enforcement actions, I imagine, that will go after ones that are attractive targets for that. So people who raise more money or people who have less controls. Basically, in this article, they talk about how it's not just asking whether or not someone is an accredited investor. And as someone who's gone through the fundraising process myself, I can tell you, you have to get someone to fill out like a seven-page form that's basically the legal proctologist equivalent, um, you know, like getting a mortgage. 
Uh, like you have to disclose a lot of information to these projects in order for the SEC to be happy that they've actually proven that they are accredited investors. So even some projects that think that they did it right and asked the questions didn't ask the questions in the right way and so are in trouble on that. And then the decentralized project, I hope we see a return to that. I think that's kind of the biggest paradox about the truly decentralized projects is how do you be truly decentralized but still able to manage substantial amounts of money, right? Like, how do you do that? Do you just completely bypass the idea of having bank accounts and having any sort of stability and just hold in speculative tokens? Or maybe I guess that's what dollar coins are for in, the, in this current day and age is maybe ICOs should really be swapping into Gemini dollars, you know, for something to hedge against that sort of risk. It's really simple. I think you're going to see the motivation be there to refocus on truly decentralized projects. And that's because centralization control structures and heavy handed pressure on centralized systems are increasing. And the middle ground of, hey, look, we're not really a security token, we'll all go to jail. So if you participated in any ICOs last year and you're in the U.S., you may want to pay attention to news that comes out about them because it looks like a number of them are quietly refunding U.S. participants as part of the settlements with the SEC. This is something I wanted to talk about, too, because the idea of refunding someone from a cryptocurrency ICO is really technically difficult, right? Because what you're talking about is, in many cases, Nobody has any information for these people. Maybe you have an email address, but maybe not. And what you have are really kind of cryptocurrency addresses, which might go back to the person, but they also might go back to someplace entirely different. And so the question has been, how do you actually do these refunds for tokens that have been distributed? And the thing that I haven't seen anybody talk about, but which I'm really curious about, is why aren't we just refunding people who have the tokens now? Why does it have to be a refund that goes to the person who you know originally put it in? Or are the SEC effectively setting these people up to profit off their participation in this because they sold the tokens and then the company still has to refund them? Anyways, it's a mess. We're, we're going to see this play out over the next couple of years. On the one hand, this is annoying. On another hand, I really, frankly, am so ready for the rules to be very clear and very obvious that we stop seeing people do these things the wrong way. And then at that point, we can get back to you know actually working on things that are interesting. <laughs> I disagree with you, Adam, and I don't think what we need is more rules so that people know how not to do it the wrong way. I think this is going to play out very nicely with market forces. It's not the rules that are going to fix this. It's a very large number of crypto token bankruptcies and a lot of investors learning the hard way that when a startup takes on two sets of risks on a two-sided market, they will fail at a faster rate than average startups, which is already 90%. And that lesson is going to be applied in the market so that the ones that do succeed are not the ones that follow the rules. The ones that succeed are the ones that follow a viable business plan and a viable investment plan that doesn't take on too much risk by being greedy. And the market will find those quite easily. Perhaps there'll be securitized tokens. Perhaps there'll be decentralized applications. Perhaps there'll be rogue elements um, that are operating out of um, quasi-nations hoping not to get bombed like Sealand. Who knows? But it, it's not more rules that we need. Um, it's better experience in this new market. And, and that just takes time. You can't rush it. You can't be a shining example, at least be a horrible warning. It's been a while since we've said that, but it feels like it's coming back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's show featured content by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. 
This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Editing by Matthew Zipkin and Adam Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.